Welcome to From the Heart with Daniel Groom and Don Lister of Anahata Yoga Center. Today we are talking to Nicole Schneckenberg, or as her ch child clients call her, Mrs. Schneck Schneck, which I prefer, I think that's much better. Um, Nicole is a child and educational psychologist, a Kundalini yoga teacher. She is a director of the Yoga and Health Care Alliance, a trustee of the Body Dysmorphic Disorder Foundation. That sounds exhausting. That's a lot of stuff going on there. I'm impressed already and I feel like I need a little lie down. <laughs> Nicole is also an author of, a, of several books, one of which I'm just reading just now. And I have to say, I love it. When And by the end of the first chapter, I felt like we were kindred spirits. We've been on a very, very similar journey in so many ways and had so many similar experiences. So... I know we're going to talk outside of this conversation and I'm really excited about where this conversation is going to take us today. And guys, if you're listening in on this podcast, you're in for a real treat. There's going to be a wealth of knowledge um, on so many levels. Um, but before we start, let's just check in how we all are. I'm having a bit of a mental day. I keep laughing for no reason. I'm going to put that down to some nervous energy, I think. Um, Daniel, how are you doing? I am well, thank you, Dawn. Um, like you, I've had a busy week this week, but I um, I, I was very honoured to have read a book that I wanted to share with everybody. Um, it's called A Dutiful Boy, um, and the author is Moshim Zahid. And it's a book about um, a young boy and his kind of route into adulthood. And he is a Muslim, he's a gay Muslim. And it's a really, really amazing, amazing book just about coming to terms with who you are, um, the fear and the acceptance that he needed to allow within himself to first deal with the religious side of, of, of admitting to himself that he was gay and then having to deal with his parents. And it's just the most wonderful story. He was he, he was really, really intellectual young man, um, born in East London, um, and managed to, through scholarship, get into um, Oxford. And then he went and studied law in Oxford. And now he's set up these amazing um, different support groups for LGBT Muslim people within London. Um, he's on the board of Stonewall. And he also is a criminal barrister as well. So he's done, he's, it just, it blew my mind, the book. I was just like, there was bits when I was literally sobbing absolutely sobbing because his story was so similar to my coming out story and just this deep-seated fear that drove everything and made him become so insular so I would recommend for everybody to read this especially if you're a parent I would highly recommend reading it because I think it gives a great insight into a, a young gay person's mind. <laughs> it sounds amazing and I saw you posted it I think on Instagram or something yesterday and I read I looked up and read the back page and I thought oh my god that's gonna make me sob um I need to be in the right headspace to read that um so I'm gonna definitely get it and I can think of a few people to get for Christmas and Daniel I think you need to ask him to be on the podcast could well do we made friends on Instagram the other day so <laughs> so why don't I ask him <laughs> I'm charging you your mission if you choose to accept it is to get him on our podcast okay, I will give it a go <laughs> Nicole gonna... how are you what's going on with you oh I, I really want to now go off and read that book thank you for sharing that Daniel I'm well I had um, a little bit of annual leave this week it was my birthday, which was lovely. So I went for, I just wanted to be outside on my birthday. So I walked in a country park. I walked along the estuary. I walked in the woods. I walked and I walked. And um, listening to you, Daniel, made me think that this week I've picked up um, Lemon Sassé. I've always enjoyed his poetry. And this week I've been picking up his book and just having a little um, 
in joy of some of his beautiful poems. And there's a really short and simple one that I hope at least I'll in part get right. And then um, if people are interested, they can go away and look. It's only three lines, but it's really touched me this week. Um, and it goes like this. Um, How do you do it, said night? How do you wake and shine? I keep it simple, said light, one day at a time. Beautiful. That's giving me the chills. Yeah. Wonderful. That's the magic of poetry, isn't it? When it's right, it touches your soul. It's like I think of poetry. I used to hate poetry because I've always been a novel girl, the fatter the better. Um, (laughs) And um, a good about 10, 15 years ago, I kind of suddenly got it. It's like, Poetry is the is the gold, isn't it? It's the essence of language. So they strip everything away and they just give you the facts, like the 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 essence of what they're trying to say in this incredible language. And I just I just love it. I was reading a Mary Oliver poem yesterday called The Journey. And it's about um six paragraphs long, so I'm not going to recite it because I can't remember any of it. I just remember it was I and I immediately sent my kids a message saying, This is what I want for Christmas, a Mary Oliver. Um <laughs> Uh, poetry book that's one of my favorite poems actually dawn and i absolutely love mary oliver and wild geese is another one of hers that's my absolute favorite yeah i remember here i've heard that quite a lot people have read it in like the end of yoga classes and and things like that yeah i can't remember what it's about but yeah i distinctly remember the name and her name Mm. yeah or maybe we'll have to dig it out and read it. <laughs> Do it. Let's read a, Let's read one on our next podcast or, read it or something. Okay, we are good. We can't talk about poetry the whole time, although that would be oh. very highbrow and lovely, wouldn't it? But but actually, that's the essence of my knowledge on poetry. So we do need to move on. Um, okay, so let's get chatting. So I, I wanted to talk to you um, firstly about body image. You know, body image is this, this massive topic. We could. We could spend hours talking about it, really, couldn't we? we? There's so many layers to the conversation, which each one of them is going to be totally fascinating. Um, firstly, I think I'd like to say that it seems to be the conversation around body shaming and the idealized view of beauty. The, these conversations are starting to be had. Um, certainly when I was growing up, that wasn't even something you talked about. You know, it, it, was, it wasn't a conversation. And if you had issues around your body, you were a bit odd or, you know, people you know, just didn't, didn't come into conversation. Um, so these conversations, I feel like it's a really good thing they're starting to happen, but we are a long way as a society from seeing um, beyond the idea of a, a perfect body, a perfect uh, shape, face, color, whatever. Um, we're still very youth obsessed and very white obsessed and very skinny obsessed. So, you know, in your opinion, could you talk a little bit about your um, thoughts around body image, the relationship between you know the mind and the body, and maybe even if you want to go into now or maybe in a minute around that deeper part of us that you know is beyond the body, that the part of us that identifies with the body, you know, could you just say a few words about just a few words about all of that? All of that <laughs> in a nutshell. In a nutshell. But it's a topic I've done a great deal of thinking and feeling about and it's been a huge part of my own personal journey as well this sense of identity embedded or pinned onto projected onto the physical appearance and I think with everything it does come back to love let's start with love and why not it's a good place to start um the the deeper desire when we strip it back I think regardless of the outward manifestation of it is that um our fear is of, of being rejected and of being un- unlovable in some way or being unloved and society perpetuates this myth that actually one way to become more lovable and to keep people close to us and to ensure that we're we're part of the fabric of things in a way that we belong is to look in a particular way and I think that's such a pervasive myth and it's so um, explicit but also subtle and insidious in the messages that we receive from a very, very early age. That, you know, is it any wonder if a person is struggling with their sense of identity, their sense of worth, perhaps experiencing feelings of shame, um, that 
they they then look outwardly to try and figure out, well, how can I make myself more lovable? How can I fix this feeling that I'm not good enough? How can I make myself good enough? And actually, very sadly, people don't need to look very far because it's in our face um, quite obviously this message that, well, you, you can become more lovable, you can um, fit in more readily if you lose weight, if you clear up your skin, if you become more muscular, you know, whatever it is. And of course, for everything, there's a, pro a product and or a procedure or something that you can do. So there's this sense, therefore, of agency. So where perhaps there may have been a sense of hopelessness, for example, um, I have a sense that I'm perhaps not good enough or even a sense that I'm potentially unlovable um, and that there's nothing I can do about it. Suddenly there's a little project. Oh, but I can lose weight. I can clear up my skin. I can um, go to the gym and increase my muscle mass or whatever it is. And then perhaps this feeling that I have of, un of unworthiness will leave and, and perhaps the the experience of feeling loved and feeling lovable will come to me. Of course, it's it's smoke and mirrors, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, because how can we fix something that is of the heart with anything like cosmetic surgery or a diet? Mm -hmm. Sadly, then what happens is, you know, maybe we lose the 10 pounds or maybe we increase the muscle mass or whatever, have our ears pinned back or whatever it is. But then that feeling remains that's so deep and so then it's the next project and the next project and perhaps then sort of toppling down um, a rabbit hole in a sense um, a conveyor belt potentially and never really getting to the root you know there's sort of a, a whole story going on on one side of the stage which is all about um, the losing of the weight or, or the changing of the body but actually stage left, there's there's kind of the real story, which is of a person perhaps who just yearns to feel lovable um, and to have a sense that, that they are good, just as they are, actually. And can I ask you, what do you think, and this is a big question, and, and I know there'll be more than one answer to it, but in your experience and your thoughts, what do you think causes that disconnect, that I'm not lovable, where does that come from? I think it's incredibly deep. And I think the reason, I wonder if the reason that it hurts so very much is because our true self, our deeper self, of course knows that's completely preposterous and it's so outside of what who we are, which is love. So therefore it grates and it hurts so much, even the very idea that we could be um, unlovable or not, not wholly good, just as we are, you know, in, in just, um, in just the form that we're in. And I think it goes back to early attachment relationships. I think it goes back to the way we are socialized and enculturalized. I think it goes back to the sense that, you know, a, a very pervasive, again, sense in the Western world, but not solely that we are these kind of separate entities that somehow need to perhaps compete against each other or, um, win win each other over or in order to um even the very concept of love you know that it's something we get or it's something that we do and then that makes it happen it's not just this sense of something that's that simply is mm. um i think all of these aspects really add add to the experiences that we're talking about today and do you feel like um because you can have a parent that you know showers their child in incredible love and the attachment seems to be good and but actually that child can still have serious issues around their body image I mean I think there's two things that come to mind I think sometimes I don't know what your thoughts on this that it, it, it passes through from parent to child you know if the parent doesn't have a deep love for themselves and maybe even are overcompensating with their child that can be an issue because they feel through the strong connection, that chasm of grief that's within the parent, the chasm of inadequacy, they can see it, but they don't understand on any level, perhaps until they come to a much wiser space at some point in the future, that that's what's going on. 
But then also we've got the other hand, we've got all the social media and, the, and that comparison thing that we do. And we need comparison. I mean, it's part of our negativity bias. It's what, what goes on. It's what, how we've learned um, as beings to evolve and survive. But all of those things go in our fate against, against us in our growth um, to understand that we are basically just, you know, one and we're all connected and we're all lovable and we're all equal. And so that stuff just isn't in place. So how, how do we, I mean, how would you say we can help others to come home to that place, to that understanding? I think... I think there are a number of avenues and of course each soul will find its own way. For me, it, it was about kind of stripping it back to my felt sense of identity. Mm -hmm. who, who is this I? You know, I'm saying that I feel unlovable or even that I am unlovable at a certain point in my life. I really believed that. Mm -hmm. um, and spending so long in that kind of story and, and living, living that out in terms of the way I made decisions about my life and the way I perceived myself and perceived others as well, particularly in, in relationship with myself. Um, and then to become very curious about, okay, you know, there's this body um, and there are these thoughts that, that come and go. Even my awareness of my body comes and goes. You know, there are times when I'm hyper aware and there are parts of my body of which I'm hyper aware and there are parts of my body um, you know, of which I'm really never aware, unless someone were to mention them. Um, so all of these things are coming and going, and yet there's there's a sense of myself that I have that's that's never come and gone. You know, like my, my sense of beingness that was there when I was two years old and five years old, and there in the the really good times and in the really tricky times whilst everything else was was arising and dissolving and I just became so interested in that and it was kind of a natural process in terms of I tend to be quite cerebral so initially it was a very kind of cognitive process of okay I'm saying I this I that I the other and um, but who is it that I'm taking myself to be mm. and then you know, exploring some traditions around that, particularly the practice of self-inquiry, this idea of staying with the sense of I um, and turning awareness back around onto awareness itself. So, you know, I can be aware of my thoughts arising and dissolving. I can be aware of um, my body um, in the mirror. I can be aware of sensations in the body. Um, but who is it that's aware? Who is it listening to my thoughts? Who is it that looks in the mirror and, and um, who observes the assumptions that then arrive, that isn't arise, that isn't the assumptions? Um, and the more I spent time with this and not got kind of then moving down from the cerebral bit of like just trying to work it out philosophically to actually sitting and, and staying with that sense of amnes, if you like, um, it began to unpeel itself for me, the, the sense of identity so much embedded in how I thought I was perceived by others and therefore the level of um, goodness I felt that was within me. It suddenly became almost superfluous because um, my experience of when I you know, when I slip into, and it really is slipping in and out, I'm for sure um, not remaining there for lengths of time, but when I slip into this pure experience of, of amnes um, that doesn't seem to have a personal identity attached, that doesn't seem to have any polarised opinions or anything about anything, it's all encompassing, that the sense is that, you know, I am love and I'm intrinsically lovable just as I am. And I think that's open for all of us. And I think we all have moments of it, even if just a little drop into it, for, um, not necessarily even actively seeking it. You know, we hear, don't we, the, the moment in the garden, seeing the bird fly by or um, the moment of looking into the eyes of the beloved and there's a dissolving that happens mm -hmm. and a, a moment just of pure beingness and aliveness. That was so beautiful, Nicole, how you've just described that. And I was wondering whether, because there are experiences that are similar to what you've described, to what I can relate within my journey of understanding myself, 
and my identity. And it might be useful for us to discuss or share the modalities of how people can use different tools, i.e. yoga, meditation, speaking therapy and other therapies or ways in that we can that we can offer that people that are listening might be able to start to explore or may have had experiences themselves with uh, or may help to recall when they've had these experiences of of truly embodying themselves. Um, I know for me, I've very much found it in um, meditation and specifically the use of of a, a, a mantra meditation so the repetition of a, of a sacred set of sounds that my teacher gave me that was very much focused upon firstly providing a sense of healing for myself. And once I felt I was healed enough to then be able to move on to the next set of mantras to be able to then go inwards and reflect. Because I think to just try and do that work it can be very very upsetting for some people and very confrontational and very scary and you kind of need to have a basis and you need to kind of have a a support network around you to be able to explore these aspects of ourselves and I wonder if there's 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 some things that you may like to share and also Dawn might like to share about experiences that she's had connecting with that inner self. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Um, and thank you so much also for raising the aspect of how scary it is, because I guess we're not talking about kind of finding the light and walking into it and basking in it, really. We're, we're I guess we're talking about going to the really dark places and I suppose that's the very nature of the human experience isn't it that the the dark places and the resistances are the places we'll try to circumnavigate by the projects that we kind of pin our identity and our hope onto um you know if I'd have been able to sit with that sense of unlovability I had um and really explore it and um, be curious about it then you know all the ways the very elaborate ways I try to um, sidestep that pain and all the drama that ensued because of that would, would not have happened but of course that those those tools aren't necessarily there for us when we're young and it's definitely not part of our societal discourse that these are the sorts of things we're necessarily talking about or learning about in any setting um so it does take a lot of courage and it is the hero's journey that mythologist joseph campbell talks about you know going to uh, one of my favorite quotes of his is it is that at the darkest moment comes the light but it means you have to stay in that darkest moment and that's tremendously terrifying. Um, it's that nameless dread that psychoanalyst Wilfred Bion, I suppose, talks about. It's just, there's, there's no words for, for it. It takes your breath away. And how do we find the courage to go there? And I think you're right, having that, whether there, there is truly a network of support in terms of the people surrounding us or whether it's, you know, perhaps our circumstances are such that that isn't felt to be so readily available, but we, we can build that up within and for ourselves as well. Um, so I know in the early days, I sort of had a bit of a, a routine, if you like, um, around it. And the first thing I would do is call to mind all the creatures, all the animals, all the things, um, even plants. I had a plant called Geraldine growing up. It was a, um, a geranium that my year six teacher had given me and that I'd nurtured for many, many years. So I'd have the sense of the plant, my, my childhood pet, Sebastian, who was a dog, like all, all of these and, and people that I'd met in my life that had really nourished me. I'd sort of bring them all into my sense of the space that I was in and invite them to kind of be there supporting me for people both dead and alive. Um, and then for me, it's interesting you mentioned mantra, Daniel, because 
I recognized for myself I was so cerebral and I was just trying to constantly work everything out and of course the nature of thoughts is to polarize and to put things into compartments whereas actually kind of this invitation to the darkness is about stripping all the edges away and all the compartments away and going in the space in between really which I guess is what poetry invites us into also um so for me it was it was chanting um, it was having, yes, a bit of an asana practice, but then sitting and chanting and chanting um, that seemed to somehow almost sweep through my consciousness and bring me to a place of, um, of moving outside of my head into my body and, and of, of connection to something a bit different that then allowed a space for practices like self-inquiry um, to feel safe, but also uh, to feel even possible, I suppose. I think um, what I've found with the mantra practice that I've, I've been doing for quite some years now is for me the notion of my brain not having something to focus on feels quite intimidating and quite scary. So the use of mantra is just a wonderful way for me to keep my mind occupied with something. <laughs> and, and kind of through the years of practice, I've realized now, you know, I can, I can recite mantras silently in my mind, whereas I, it, for years I could only outwardly project it. And I had to have the experience of the tongue and the mouth and the, you know, the, 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 the sound leaving my body. Whereas now actually, I start off like that and then I quieten down and quieten down to silence. And it's giving your brain almost these different levels of, 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 of depth for it to go into, which then after some time almost falls away because I'm not even conscious that I am reciting the mantra in my mind anymore. It's just become something that my brain is doing. And they're the points where I find myself then dropping into that sense of complete connection within myself it, it reminds me of a lovely phrase that comes up in kundalini yoga a lot which is um that when the mind is occupied it cannot be preoccupied and that it, it the nature of the mind is to wish for something to chew over and i mean even that we could have a massive conversation about you know, what is even the mind are there are thoughts arising and dissolving but where are they arising and dissolving from who knows um but the sense that kind of thoughts are chewing over and we can kind of have them chewing over all manner of things or we can make quite a conscious decision. Um, and actually something I did a while ago and that I shared in my book was write, wrote a job description for my thoughts to say, you know, mate, your, your job is not to work everything out or to, or to run my life or to, um, I'm afraid I can only give you about 5% of my attention because 95% of my attention is absorbed by my soul and, sensation and other things but however this is what I see your your kind of job job to be and you have a very clear role of course you do and you're beautiful in that role and you're wonderful in what you do um, but let's be a bit explicit about that um, and I found that really really helpful and, and for the the mantra and the repetition of a mantra particularly when it's in so for example in the tradition of kundalini yoga we tend to chant in gurumukhi um, it's it, again it's like a poem because you are almost slipping through the space in between because there's a sense and a resonance of it and there's something beyond anything that the mind can possibly um capture and of course it's you know it's the vibration and it's all of those things um but at the same time there is a falling bet between the gap that just allows a kind of relaxation of thought to happen and therefore allows a space um, for perhaps things that are held in the body and have been for years. Um, I just remember when I first started the practice of chanting for a while in the morning, and then I would after that sit with my sense of unlovability. That was my invitation to myself. Um, the tears were just poor, absolutely poor, but from a very different place, not from a place of self-pity or just, it felt like a, the, the mantra had somehow released the tears that had been stored up there for many, many, many years in a way that, you know, I've tried other modalities in a way that dance or asana or 
writing or anything else hasn't done in quite the same way for me personally. And I think there's always a clue just to say in our childhood, I really do, because when I, it's so fascinating to me that when I think back over my life, mantra has always been a part of my life, but you'd have to really look for it. I was brought up a cradle Catholic and I just loved the rosary. And I would be, even as a very young child, just reciting the rosary and I'd always make it into a little song. Um, and so from the age of four, I could tell you all the way through my life how different forms of mantra from different traditions have really taken hold of me and been so much part of my experience. So it's always been there really in my story. And I wonder if it could be that, for, that way for many of us if, if we look um, for those little clues. I think um, it's it's a really it's a really powerful um, thing you've just you've just explained. I mean, most people have no idea that they aren't their thoughts. So let's start them. You know, uh, most people live in the experience of thought. They're just reactive. Um, they live in their um, intellect, and there's no sense that there's anything other than that. There's just how they feel and what they think, and there's no understanding whatsoever on any true felt sense that there is a there is an another part of them that's the witness I, I, I call it the witness um, or the soul um, and just just to begin to have that question and I, and that certainly is a, a question that something that I sat with myself for for you know a, a period of time was well who is it and it was in our Buddhist tradition that I was practicing years ago who is it who is it that's listening? Who is it that's seeing? Who is it that's hearing? Who is it that's feeling? And I remember for years going, what's well, me? <laughs> what's the stupid question? I remember I used to say that to the teacher. That's the most stupid question I ever heard. You're just making me more and more frustrated. And I'd get more and she was like, you'll have to surrender. And I used to she's, and I remember I used to say to all the other students, she's not got kids. She doesn't like she hasn't got my life she doesn't know what it's like to be in my head I thought she was bonkers absolutely bonkers uh, but but also I could see that, that there's a serenity and I really believed in the practice because the practice on some level had given me so much and I thought well I'm just going to stick with it because Buddha's Buddha Buddha didn't suffer so this has got to be the way and I just stuck with it but actually for me the the final release came in deep suffering so you know brought up in the cult, very bad anorexia and bulimia for years and years, you know, a lot of self-loathing, having a family, ending up in a very dark marriage, daughter with very severe mental health. I, I was practically hanging on by the fingernails at this point, and, but I had my practices to sustain me. But interestingly, when I look back, my yoga asana practice, I punished myself in. You know, I, it was only in meditation where I found any sense of peace. Um, asana was just my, it was my job. I, this how I earn my money, this how I feed my family. You know, I, I, oh, my body feels good in it, but actually I wasn't kind to myself in there. And, and it was really when I turned my gaze inwards and let and stopped and let myself feel the suffering that these moments that you're speaking of where the sense of an intellectual self just fell away and the connection with all things and that you know you speak about as being a feeling of spaciousness and in your book it was interesting because you say you know I, I was the clouds I was the trees I was and I thought well, that's exactly how I felt you know when it all fell away I didn't even I wasn't there because there is no I we are illusionary we're an illusionary experience and you're just everything I mean I was there wasn't even an earth the earth doesn't exist in that space there's just energy you know there's this universe and I think once you've had that experience even just for a moment the whole world is turned on its head and like you now have this tool where you're like oh my god you know if i'm in deep suffering and pain yes that's human it's normal this is what happens in this realm and as the buddhists say the realm of samsara but actually there is more than this and i can come from it and you said the word love and that's exactly it that's the only thing that exists in that place is or in our, in our home you know it's the only thing that we are is we are love and when we're not in that space we're in our ego so, you know, we're speaking about the, you know, the practices of yoga, of mantra, of meditation. These are all wonderful invitations to come home to ourself. And I guess for each one of us, it's different, isn't it? We have to find the thing that most resonates with us, and that will be different at different times. So I know you work um, 
with clients, children, and I think adolescents. I don't know if you work with adults also, um, but you know, what, how how do you introduce this kind of work with these young people? I'm sure there's so many parents and young people maybe who are listening who would think, oh God, I'd like some of that. I'd like to learn to like myself and not hate myself. What, how, what, what do you do? How do you start with that? I think I always start um, Dawn with the person. So you know, that period of getting to know and building that trust. And then for me, a key is that those two C's, that curiosity and that compassion. And there's the real magic in that. Um, being truly compassionate to someone's experience, but also truly curious about it. Mm -hmm. And that takes a certain amount of noticing one assumptions and okay, acknowledging them, but um, as much as is possible, laying them to one side and really coming with the open minds and heart. I so often think of Wilfred Beale, and I mentioned him earlier as a, a psychoanalyst. He talks about coming to clients without memory or desire. And I love that. You know, not, not what our last session was or what I think about you or, and not desire, no expectation about how this is gonna go, this conversation, this session, this therapy, this experience we're having together. Here I am, here you are. Um, and that level of openness opens up a space that I find there is a natural um, opportunity then to explore things at a level that perhaps might not be so possible. And, and then very much going with the metaphors, um, the, the resonances, the, the passions of that person to explain that. And that again is where I find metaphor so helpful because so much of our experience is beyond the level of conscious thought. Mm. And so much of our experience is um, procedural it's of the body it's sensational it's feeling based it isn't explicit mm. and so much of our early experience is procedural in as much as it was pre-verbal you know the way a lot of um aspects of our sense of self was, was laid down were before we we could speak mm. um, so there aren't words for it so talking therapies are wonderful and I use a lot of talking therapies but it, we can talk and talk and talk until the cows come home there's there's things in the space beyond the words um, and for every person it will be different in finding finding the language to lead to the space of, of, of wordlessness I guess and I do a lot of sitting with people um, once we have that trust um, and that um, rapport um, without words and exploring some embodied practices so bringing in some yoga bringing in um, music and poetry and movements and all of those things and but being very compassionate to where people are at as well and, and really stripping things back and and simplifying things where 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 required and, and where necessary and I think we were having this conversation um when we were talking about uh, this this podcast and it's, it's thinking about what's universal to our experience. And of course, what we're talking about is universal to our experience, but because it's not universally spoken about, it can feel a bit weird or a bit trippy or a bit bonkers. Um, but, you know, thinking about language that we all use, for example, the language of parts, you know, so part of me wants to go for a walk, but part of me wants to stay at home with a hot cup of tea because it's cold outside. What I've identified there, there are two aspects of self. Mm. Um, okay, that's a starting point. That's something that is, is quite universal. Okay, well, who's noticing that there's there's someone that wants to go for a walk and there's someone that wants to have a cup of tea? We've Okay, we've gone a step further. Now we're beginning to be like... psychologists we work 0 to 25 so it's a wonderful range and of course we work with parents and carers as well so I do work across the lifespan um can you hear me still okay it just said that my internet was unstable yeah it just I just I was just saying it just cut out there for a second I think just did was it did you hear that Daniel yeah it did cut out for a second yeah, so maybe just backtrack for just a second. So we were speaking about the um, 
parts and identifying which part of us is it that can see that there are separate parts bringing in that and then it kind of cut out at that point oh sorry about that it's okay yeah, and, and then just use it like that's one potential example of a starting point i suppose to that then become curious about these different aspects of self um and yet the, the beingness or the you know again always using the language um that the person is comfortable with and that they use themselves that the beingness that's kind of beneath and beyond all of that 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 seamless sense of self that um is the one that's aware that i want to walk and i want to have a cup of tea and that there's a there's a attention there and my experience of young people is that they really get that and the way they the metaphors they use to describe it are far better than I could ever come up with it's just amazing it's so common for me to hear young people say things to me like I've got a devil on one shoulder and an angel on another and I know that that's something society and we see in film we see in books um the the, the sense of tension between different aspects of the self is felt and understood and that's a good starting point to begin to strip back to experience some of those deeper layers if you like i think it's just so wonderful that we can you know have this conversation because actually the incredible suffering that happens with people who are in this place of disconnect because actually as we as we know and i'm sure most people are aware in some levels that you know an eating disorder or eat or disordered eating is ultimately you know, about being disconnected, about not loving yourself. Because I know for myself, I literally woke up one day and said, I like myself too much to hurt myself anymore. And that was the thing. And that that moment came from, you know, actually 11 years of practicing loving kindness meditation. And suddenly it kind of all came together. I was like, geez, I, you know, if I end up 15 stone or nine stone, I'm still me doesn't matter and it just it, it came from that the only thing that changed it nobody could say anything to make me change no one could make me feel better I had to fall in love with myself and at that point I didn't really understand this deeper eye at all I kind of knew it was some kind of something that was there but I didn't really get what it meant but I did like myself and I did love myself and I knew that I deserved better than this punishment and so to have to be able to sit in a space with another person and love them unconditionally, I imagine is incredibly healing for clients that you see. And if we have a capacity to do that for ourselves and each other, surely we could, we could see a revolution in society where people stopped pinning their self-worth on the size of their jeans and the bag they were carrying and what color their skin is and what their gender is and any of it, all of it, it could all drop. And I mean, I'm hopeful that the younger generation are pushing back enough because we see it a lot, don't we, on social media. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of social media, but you see this change in, you know, people saying, well, this is who I am, like it. This is how I like it. I, if you don't like it, that's your problem. And I mean, do you, do you feel hopeful? How do you feel about it? And Daniel, how do you feel about it? I feel a huge amount of hope. Um, I can see that there's still a lot of struggle there um, and that again is appears to be part of the process but I feel a huge amount of hope even some of the ways young people talk like one young person said to me recently I don't know I think I was wearing a bit of an unusual top and he said he liked my top and I thanked him and said well, you, you know you're one of the few because most people look at this top and, and wonder what on earth I was, was thinking and he said no no he said you do you you do you <laughs> and those sorts of little catchphrases that are of the youth today make me think that is in their common parlance because that is important to them mm. that each to do who they are mm. and each to um, acknowledge their own uniqueness and to celebrate it and not to have to fit in I think that is the zeitgeist of the times and again I think it takes huge courage mm. to say actually no um, because it, it is that longing to belong that's also part of the human experience where, where actually perhaps it is quite easy um, to have the same fashion as everyone in, in your group so that you can be sure that you're part of that group. But there's an appetite for something else and there's an appetite for being the true self, 
you know, Donald Winnicott, British um, psychoanalyst and paediatrician, talked about this so beautifully, this sense that we're born as a true self. We have this spontaneous sense of aliveness. Whatever emerges, emerges, and we're unabashedly who we are. We said it's celebratory. Here I am, you know, this is wonderful. Um, and then gradually this false self steps forward to more readily meet the demands of society, of of our primary caregivers for whom we, we need to keep close. Um, and then all the cultural myths and the societal myths come in and this false self takes more and more over. But the true self, it never goes. And it's always there knocking on the door of our heart saying, let me out, um, spontaneous sense of aliveness. And I see it in the eyes of the young people. Um, and it, wake, it wakes it up again in me when it's sometimes I, I feel that false self a little bit um, stepping forwards again. I have massive hope. That's so good to hear. Daniel, what do you think? Because I know you've some amazing people. Well, I, yeah, I was just reflecting upon what Nicole was saying, just saying about how yoga is kind of marketed and sold and promoted um, because they're, you know, it's a contradiction in terms of the actual practice being one that is so, so about connecting deeply with yourself and by allowing yourself to be the person who you are, then your life hopefully becomes a little bit of an easier way to live. But then also those people around you also experience you in your best form. But as we've said, there's a lot of hard work that needs to go, needs to be done by the individual and a lot of looking in some very dark places within ourselves to be able to really connect with that true self. And something that is a real issue for me is the marketing of yoga and this expectation that by coming to do a few postures, and maybe laying down for five minutes at the end, your life's going to change dramatically. And I think mm -hmm. as, as yoga practitioners and each of us kind of, you know, using yoga as a modality or forms of yoga as a modality that we've all understood who we are to a deeper level, and then the, the, the responsibility that we have as teachers to then be teaching other people about this takes years to change or this takes years to understand. And it feels to me yoga marketing and yoga kind of the way that it gets marketed makes it look like it's a very quick fix. And it feeds into exactly what you were talking about at the start of this podcast around, oh, you can just buy a product and this will help your anxiety or, you know, this will make you feel different or you'll lose weight by doing this. And actually, all of that aside, is you, they're useful things that maybe come out because of the yoga practice. But fundamentally, the real, the real emphasis should be on, you know what, yoga is really hard work and you've got to put in the hours and you've got to really, really spend time looking in those deep and dark places to be able to then step forwards and actually get rid of those things out of your life that you feel are no longer supporting you or to let go of those things that you feel you need to you need to move away from to let yourself live that life that feels more fulfilled and i think we have a real responsibility to make sure that that message is getting out because otherwise there's a false hope that's given to what is offered through practices of yoga, meditation, and many, many other, you know, spiritual or well-being, um, well-being um, practices. And unfortunately, you know, up until very recently, it was always sold through the white woman in a bikini on a beach that was very skinny, doing a posture that 99% of the, of the population could never do. You know, so it immediately shuts down, doesn't it? So many people having access to be able to come to yoga because they don't relate with that message that's got, set out, got sent out. And then it suggests something 
about what this is all about you know yeah. what what is yoga what are we talking about are we talking about a connection of the finite to the infinite are we talking about a binding of um sense of self with with the you know the embodied sense of self with the soul and are we talking about getting the nose to the toes you know what what, what is it that we're talking about and I think also what really saddens me working in the field of food and body image struggles is how it can also be appropriated and almost um I know spiritual bypassing is sort of a term thrown around but a sense of I went on this retreat and I, I fasted for 40 days and or you know I or, or people going to yoga studios and then they're, they're advertising juice fasts and then that's taken up well or or I must become a vegan if I'm going to be a yogi I mustn't eat any animal products and actually almost becoming part of the struggle for the person um, rather than being that avenue of of so many things you know that avenue of balancing the nervous system an avenue of increasing interoceptive awareness on the purely biological levels and then an avenue of um, having a sense of the finite deeply connected to, to the infinite absolutely i mean i think in the end our our practice is all about how we do it it's not what we do you know the intentionality of coming to the mat you know, we can do the same practice in our kitchen. <laughs> I, I, how I'm bringing my awareness to the preparation of my food, that's a yoga, you know. How I bring my awareness to the way I receive information and hear other people, that's a yoga. You know, how I look after myself, that all of it is, you know. The map, the practice of asana has been commodified by the Western world. And, you know, certainly for Daniel and I, we have zero interest in being part of that problem and try very hard to offer a practice that is, uh, I think of it as a refuge. So, you know, there's times when we, we come to our practice with you know, great sorrow in our heart and actually it's there to hold that and make a space for us to either be with it for however long we need to be or process it, or we come to our practice open and full of love and, you know, it's an expression and we feel our body is ready to open and release and, it's about having um, a deep conversation with ourselves about our body, our soul, our mind, our connectivity to other beings. And is that spoken about very much? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, so I guess that's a little bit of our, I don't want to say mission, but it's a little bit of a mission. That's kind of what we're trying, what we're trying to do with what we do. Um, yeah, I mean, Daniel, yeah, you. I can see you want to say something. Go, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think, what what is what has changed is and you touched upon this nicole when you said you were working with those young people it's about not expecting an outcome yeah. it's about being prepared to just be with whatever is there and some days that can be amazing and other days it can be deeply painful and being okay with what is there rather than there being an outcome takes yoga back to its essence of what actually it was intended for so it isn't to change anything necessarily it's to uncover and then hopefully make wise decisions about what you've uncovered to move forwards from and um, sorry Nicole Oh no, sorry, I didn't mean to talk to interrupt you, Daniel. Um, I was just thinking about how, you know, in terms of asana practice, this sense of yielding, you know, any posture, you know, I can do downward dog with the intention of um, it looking a certain way or perfecting a, an aesthetic of it. Or I can, in those moments that you spoke of, Daniel, I can bring my pain to the mat. And that pain is in that downward dog, actually. And that that yielding to that suffering is, is in that posture. You know, my head is hanging. Um, the muscles are, are releasing. There, there might be tears falling onto the mat. That's the experience. The experience. Um, 
And actually, I feel very grateful, and I mean it with all my heart, I feel deeply grateful that I have some physical limitations that mean that many, many, many of the postures are completely inaccessible to me in terms of asana around, and when I say inaccessible, I mean as to how perhaps they're peddled that they should look, for example. Um, and I love the fact that I'm a, a qualified yoga teacher and a qualified yoga therapist, and that my body gives a form of, a, of an asana that certainly wouldn't be Instagram worthy or, um, or anything like that. And for me, that's just such a massive gift because it, you know, in that, I think that there's so much conversation that can happen around what, what are we actually doing here? And what is the purpose of this? And the children taught me that. Years ago, I worked as a yoga therapist with special yoga, particularly with children with autism, but with all sorts of kind of developmental differences and neurodevelopmental differences. And, you know, with some of the children, there was no asana. Um, I remember one little boy, and he'd work, walk in circles around and around the room, and we sort of kind of made circles around each other, and that was our hour together. Occasionally, our, our eyes, we'd catch each other's gaze, and then we'd continue doing these concentric circles. And I remember having a lot of guilt, thinking, oh, his mum's spending this money for him to come to special yoga to spend an hour with me to walk around and around in circles. And that was so much about expectation of my own stuff, because that was our yoga, that was our yoga and it was beautiful. Um, yeah, so I think I resonate very strongly with, with what you were saying there, Daniel. I've, I've noticed a shift in certain larger organisations that promote yoga, that there is now an understanding of there needing to be a wider breadth of marketing. And that is a really, really great thing that's happening. But then I think what then the problem is, there's then not enough people with enough experience who are teachers to be able to meet the needs of those people. So it's kind of like you're, you've got this kind of false <laughs> hope happening almost, you know, oh, you know, some, somebody maybe that's confined to a chair sees on a, on a, on a you know, a, a major yoga website for example or, or facebook page oh there's someone in a wheelchair doing yoga i can do that and then trying to find someone can be really challenging because actually there's a real passion that's needed to want to go and learn those those in, intrinsic needs of certain people to be able to support them and I, I think, you know, I think there's a kind of, you've almost got these kind of two layers, haven't you? You've got people that have kind of done yoga teacher training for their own beautiful reasons. You, and then you've got other people who are kind of highly experienced. And, and, and there's kind of like this sort of middle ground where there doesn't feel like there's, a, there's, there's enough people that are kind of wanting to push on or learn more. And, and for me, it would be really beautiful to start to see that gap being filled a little bit more by people that can offer more specialist yoga styles or types, depending on what they're interested in and, you know, what makes their heart sing, you know. And, and, and it's, it's beautiful that you've kind of found that niche, Nicole, within <laughs> your your world and you you know for you it is very much working with 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 the younger people and really helping to to develop and mold them in a certain way and for me it's been you know I still like I'm sort of finding my way because yoga therapy opened my mind up to so much more and um, and yet I'm kind of I for me it's very much about at the moment working with anxiety working with stress because that's where I've come from you know and that's my understanding but it I I do feel I do I, I think it's the duty of us to kind of keep getting that message out that there are people out there that can do that that can that can offer a, a level of support that's maybe more than what is currently seen in a lot of marketing and, and I think that's really helpful to note that but, you know, of course, we're all on our own journey and that will lead us to the particular spaces and places that we find ourselves in. And it's not to say that one is good and one is bad. 
you know, if a person has a desire for physical fitness or for flexibility and to get the nose to the toes is, is for them a goal. And that's, that's what, what speaks to them in that moment, then that's also a beautiful thing. And I think so often, I, I mean, I came to yoga through the back door. Um, I was so afraid to experience my interoceptive signals. I was so afraid of what I would find if I connected to my body from the neck down. I just didn't want to go there. I was like a floating head for years. Mm -hmm. um, and yet I started working with children in a capacity as a special needs teacher at the time. And I saw these children so distressed and so out of their body. And I resonated with a lot of what I saw. And I thought there has to be something, there has to be something that I can use to support these children um, in, in their distress. And I sat on the sofa one Sunday and yoga popped into my head and I Googled it and I got on a plane to Texas a couple of weeks later to do the special yoga training with Sonia Sumar and there it was. And that's how I found my own practice. Um, so I guess we all come to it from different ways, but it's offering that opportunity to know that there are so many different ways, isn't there? And that if there is a desire um, for something that isn't necessarily what might be on the front of the magazines, that that is also available. To people as well i think we're gonna have to wind this conversation up i could talk for hours but i think we'll have to have you back and um, we're gonna have to have lunch and, and talk some more um just to, to, to round things up you know um first of all a massive thank you for your knowledge and your eloquence which is deeply inspiring um what what could you just give our listeners a little taste of what it is that you do to take care of yourself how, how do you look after yourself thank you That's such a nice question um, to ask um i think for me it's sensory and again this comes back to the feeling aspect so i used to kind of feed myself if you like excuse the pun but sort of do that self-care through lots of reading and just filling up my mind with things which I still very much enjoy and is my propensity but I've just noticed what a sensory being I am so warmth um hot water bottle smells I've always got something burning um you know a, a candle or or something um touching nature touching trees touching leaves um having my feet against the earth I think the major way I self-care is through these sensory experiences and, and particularly through um, touch sensations, baths, blankets wrapped very tightly around myself, um, the clothing I wear that it's kind of soft and close to my skin, all of these things um, help me to feel held, I think. That's yeah. beautiful. That's so beautiful. Thank you for that, Nicole. Okay, Daniel, do you want to um, round us up by letting letting our listeners know what's coming up? Do you know? Do you, I've, I've no idea what's coming yeah, up. Yeah, don't worry. I just checked. <laughs> 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 Thank you so much, Nicole. It was really, really beautiful to just spend some time with you. It's always lovely to spend time with you. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you both so much for inviting me along. I've enjoyed this immensely. It's been a pleasure for you to be here with us and yeah, just to hear more about what you do is fascinating. Um, so we've got coming up, um, the week after next, we are interviewing a um, chef called Chef Cynthia and um, she's actually based in Bali and Chef Cynthia, I can never say that. I've got, I want to put a TH in, Chef Cynthia. <laughs> um, she, she's a, a, a huge advocate of kind of feeding yourself with really nutritious and really, really beautiful food that is both um, intoxicating for the eyes as well as the mouth. And she's, 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 she's an artist in what she does, really, in the production of food. So um, Dawn's really excited on having I've got a Chef massive Cynthia girl crush. I've got such a girl crush on Chef Cynthia. I, like, stalk her page every day. I, I, she probably doesn't want to know that. She'll refuse to come on, though. But, oh, my God, her is <laughs> incredible. And it feels like she's having a love affair with this food every time she's making it. It's just amazing. Has she confirmed yet, Daniel? We're just waiting on confirmation. But it was confirmed. We just need to double confirm. If she's not there, we'll just talk about her. 
<laughs> talk about <laughs> Chef Cynthia and, and read out her recipes. Let's do that. <laughs> Dawn can have a food porn hour. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Maybe so, a few things and taste them live. So we've got that coming up, and then um, I, I, I'm indulging myself the, a few weeks after that. We've got my teacher Lisa Kaylee Isley coming to talk all about yoga therapy, and we will be talking more about mantra and the use of mantra because it's very much her practice. And Nicole, I know you know Lisa as well. Um, and then the week after that, I'm really excited because we've got my other teacher, Uma Dinsmore-Tilly, coming on to talk all about women's health and the movement that she is currently working with called Yoni Shakti about raising women's awareness in yoga and the, particularly the, the, the abuse of women in, in yogic spaces. Um, and if you haven't checked out Uma's Facebook page and Instagram, I would highly recommend it. She's done a very commendable thing that I was going to speak about in this podcast, but forgot until now. Um, but she's given her page over to um, women who she feels are um, maybe not so well represented within the yoga world. So she has um, had these most amazing and inspiring women on who have took over the pages and just been talking about, you know, what they what they need to see. In the, in the yoga world about how marketing is and how yoga is led and really from their perspective how we need to change as an industry. So Uma as ever is on the warpath banging her drum <laughs> in a very kind way. <laughs> we are so lucky these conversations we're having are just they're rich they're interesting they're you know, I feel, I feel really, really joyful about it. It's a great thing. So thanks, Nicole. It's been great to have you. And thanks, Daniel. As always, it's good for us to have a chinwag. And guys, stay well. And we will see you all back here very soon. <laughs>